Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 584 of the Survival Podcast. It is, what is it? It is a Tuesday. It is January 11th, 2001. That means today's date is 1-1-1-1-1. Kind of cool, huh? Uh, we have a really great show planned today. I have the Patriot Nurse very well known for her YouTube channel, uh, waiting on the line right now. We'll be bringing her on as soon as we knock out the housekeeping to talk about preparing for disaster from a medical and a hygienic standpoint and give us some thoughts on the medical profession as a whole, the nutritional profession as a whole, a lot of other great things. She has some wonderful insights. We're really uh, blessed to have her with us on TSP today. But before we do that, again, we do have to knock out our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by making sure the show is here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one today, ready-made resources. Hey, what more can you ask from a, from a company than they give you the name of their company and the name of that company tells you what they do and it, they mean what they say and then they, you know, they, they fulfill it. That's what ready-made resources does. They provide you all the resources that you need ready-made, ready to go for your prepping needs. Uh, everything that you can possibly think of from long-term storage foods uh, to products for, for solar and wind power. They have an awesome catalog on solar and wind alone. Check out ready-made resources. They even have garden gardening tools and things like that. 12-volt appliances for your solar and wind projects. You name it, they've got it. Check out ready-made resources. Next up today, MERSradio.com. Uh, That's actually MERS-radio.com. Great little company specializes in a little, uh, little, uh, a small assortment of outstanding equipment that combines secondary communications, uh, along with security into one package. I love my MERS equipment. Uh, I absolutely know if someone's trying to get in the gate of my backyard or if they're prowling around my shed or they're outside my front door. Why? Because I hear a little thing that says alert zone one, alert zone two, things like that. I know everything from if there's somebody out there I don't want out there. Uh, or even if there's an animal prowling around at night that might require my attention, or just the fact that somebody that's coming to visit me is out on the front door, I know before they even ring the doorbell that they're there. Uh, that's nice to have here in the city. When we move out into a rural area where we're a little further away it'll and we have a little bit more land, it'll be an even bigger, uh, nice thing to have. So check out MERS Radio. Again, great way to combine secondary communications with security. Um, I also want to remind you guys to connect with us with all our social media outlet, outlets. And the big ones are Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Uh, I get a lot of Facebook f uh, requests for friend requests from you guys. Please understand, if I don't know you and you send me a friend requ request on Facebook, like a personal one uh, for my personal page because you've looked me up, I'm probably not going to accept it. Not because I don't like you, not because I don't want to get to know you, but Facebook actually has a limit on how many friends you can have. And... Um, 
I, it's just the, the sheer number alone, I can't do it. I do have a Facebook fan page, and I actually pay more attention to it anyway. So if you want to connect with me on Facebook, uh, there's a link on the, on the website. Uh, and, and use that link and connect with our, uh, our survival podcast fan page. Best way to go. Same with YouTube and Twitter. I have uh, one YouTube account, one Twitter account that are for the show. They're the ones I actually pay attention to. Love to have you connect with me there. And if you, if you post to my page, if you post to my Twitter, uh, odds are I'm going to respond to you. I try to put time aside every day to do that. Uh, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. And you support the work that we're we're doing here with the Survival Podcast. And what it comes out to, a little less than 20 cents an episode. That's $50 a year uh, or $5 a month, your choice. And uh, the, the, the numbers of you that have done that is really humbling, and it's really allowed me to live my dream, and I thank you for it. And if you're considering doing it, know this. Um, I set that up so that this show wouldn't be supported by donations, but by real value. You join the Member Support Brigade, you get discounts to over 20 vendors. Uh, you get over $100 worth of free ebooks. You get a bunch of videos by me that are available nowhere else. You get a, a definite return of your investment uh, by signing up for the Member Support Brigade uh, and making that contribution again at $50 a year or $5 a month. All right, folks, and with the housekeeping knocked out, as I uh, said earlier, we do have the Patriot Nurse standing by uh, waiting to talk to us today about uh, all the things that we can do to be medically prepared and and, and some levels just hygienically prepared uh, in the case that we would have a major disaster or even a minor disaster. Best known, of course, for her YouTube channel, Patriot Nurse. Welcome to the Survival Podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Jack. I sure do appreciate it, and I am very humbled and grateful for the opportunity to come and talk with you and uh, all your listeners. Well, hey, uh, everybody was really excited to have you on, and one of the things I wanted to kind of let people get maybe is a little bit of a feel. I mean, why should they why should they take you at your word when you, you know, give them medical advice or anything like that? Can you tell us just maybe a li- without revealing you know anything too personal, a little bit about your background, how you got into healthcare and medicine, and, and what you've kind of done, and 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 then how did that lead you to take on the ro- role of being patriot nurse and saying not only do I have this medical background, but folks, we need to be prepared for some tough times. Mm-hmm. Well, as a kid, I always was one of those kids on every field trip, inevitably somebody would get sick and it seemed that the chaperones would respectively delegate their <laughs> their different responsibilities to different kids and so I frequently was endowed with the gift of taking care of all the sick people. But <laughs> so you could you could say that it was kind of a natural gift as I was growing up, but I went into nursing and I've been a nurse for 4 years. Uh, two, actually not three, I just quit my uh, inpatient psych job, but I did three years inpatient psych, and I've well, worked as a doula, which is like a, a labor support person for laboring women, and I currently work in a birth center setting, so we do natural birth free of epidurals and that type of thing, so you could say that right now I'm, I'm doing birth at, from a medical standpoint, much as it was done a hundred years ago, before we had many of the the benefits of modern technology that we currently have, so it, that's that's where I'm coming from from a medical standpoint. I've also done orthopedic, total hips, total knee replacements. I've done a bunch of the different stuff, and it was in 2008 when I kind of woke up to use the the proverbial phrase, and from there realized the necessity to prepare and to to have a variety of contingency plans, not only for food, not only for ammunition and for weaponry, but also for medicine. And I think that medicine, the Band-Aids portion of the beans, bullets, and Band-Aids is 
perhaps the most overlooked and underprepared for area of prepping to this day. And it was because of that perceived efficiency that um, I praised that I set forward on YouTube to at least put out some semblance of a knowledge base and, and of a medical prep mindset for people because I looked out there and there just wasn't very much there. There are a few videos on suturing and, and that type of thing, but from a comprehensive medical perspective, I just didn't see all that much. And so I figured, well, I'm sure that if I'm looking, there are other people looking too. And so that's how it all started. And here I am today. And how long have you been running your channel? How many videos do you have up now? Ooh, I think I've been up maybe seven months, something like that, and I want to. I've got over 20 videos. I tend to try and take it slow because I want people to be able to digest and and think over and mull over the material and to have time to apply that before I move on to the next one. So I kind of take my time with it. Very cool. And I mean, hey, folks, if you haven't seen the Patriot Nurses uh, videos yet in her YouTube channel, you guys really need to. I'd say probably, you know, half the audience is like, wow, Patriot Nurse is coming on. The other half's like, who's Patriot Nurse? So, <laughs> guys, I'll tell you, some of the most down-to-earth, practical, real-world advice I've seen. So make sure you check out her channel and give her a subscription, man. Subscribe to her channel. And while you're there, subscribe to ours uh, as well. Um, but, you know, I wanted you maybe to kind of give people some ideas right now about Let's let's leave out for for the time being anyway the major you know shit hit the fan the major implosion of society on a daily basis. What are the things that maybe people should be doing to be just a little bit more prepared than they are beyond you know the first aid kit? We talk about band aids and we use that as generic generic term, but like like you know when we say band aids in the survival mentality, we mean a hell of a lot more than that. But if we go to Walmart and buy a first aid kit. It's pretty much like a 117-piece kit with 101 Band-Aids, making up 170 <laughs> yeah. pieces. So, like, what are the things people should be prepared for, and what things beyond that basic off-the-shelf kit maybe uh, should they have on their person to deal with the, the, the things that would be like, – what I'm getting at is I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to be a doctor. I almost flunked high school biology, but there are things I can do that can save a life. What are those big critical things? Well, I think the way that we can perhaps appraise this and to, to look forward on this is to look at other countries, look at countries that are not as fortunate as we are, and look at where we were as a country from a health standpoint about a 100 years ago. A lot of people were perishing from res respiratory infections that probably started out as meager sinus infections or a cough or a cold, and they quickly metamorphed into pneumonia. So a lot of people died from upper respiratory infections that went to their, their lower respiratory tract. A lot of people died from foodborne diseases, typhoid Mary. Everybody knows about typhoid, but uh, typhoid and other foodborne diseases, they, they killed a whole lot of people. So diarrhea and infectious diarrhea and that type of thing. This is really mundane stuff. And it's stuff that when we hear it, when it when it touches our ears, when these words like diarrhea or respiratory infection, when these words kiss our ears, we kind of glance over them because they're not very exciting. They're not glitzy like gunshot wounds. They're not exciting like field surgery. But these are things that killed a ton of people a hundred years ago. And to this day, if you do a search on U5 mortality, which is the causative mechanisms, the reasons why children are perishing under five years old around the world, the top three things, no matter any way you slice it, the first is upper respiratory infections or respiratory infections in general, the second is diarrhea, and the third is measles. 
So these are infectious diseases. These are not the glamorous things, but these are things that it behooves us to be prepared for. And just to give you an example, right now in Tennessee where I'm at, there's six inches of snow snow on the ground here. We haven't seen this in years. And people are are homebound, and I'm sure power is probably out in different places. But if you're looking at even a week of of no power or uh, two weeks perhaps of not being able to get out of your house, you're snowbound, if you've got somebody who's getting sick, I mean, somebody can really, they can take take south on you pretty quickly within the span of, of five days. So especially if they were feeling kind of cruddy to begin with. So upper respiratory type of stuff, diarrhea type of stuff, and also just pain control, like muscle aches and, and this type of stuff, or even if you just like, feel really crappy. I mean, pain control is a big thing, too. And a lot of people, they may have one bottle of Tylenol in the fridge, but there are some people who can't take Tylenol. There are folks who may have a bottle of aspirin, but you sure can't give aspirin to a child who has viral-like symptoms because it can give them Rice syndrome. So... It, it behooves us to have a multifaceted approach to each different problem. And I think that's where some of my videos come in. I like to try and give folks options. I'm a real big believer in having more than one way out of a corner. <laughs> so that's that's kind of my appraisal of the situation. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I mean, I had Brandon Shelton on uh, about, I guess, a month and a half ago, and he's been doing a lot of relief work down to Haiti after the earthquake. And it's basically said the thing that people are dying of down, right now, down there right now officially is cholera. But they're not dying of cholera. They're getting cholera and dying of diarrhea. It's, right. it's just like I said this earlier on the show last week. This is not something we want to have dinner table conversation about generally a subject like this. But it is something that um, is as off-putting as it is. It's, it's very common, and it can cause death through dehydration. So like, what can a person include in their personal first aid kit to deal with this problem? That's a fantastic question. I just, my most recent video is entitled Survival Lessons from the Haitian Cholera Epidemic, where we talk about these types of things. Something that everyone needs to have in, in their, their kit is a method to create rehydration salts. This is, I mean, just regular salt, table salt, water, sugar. You can do potassium chloride, which you can buy that over the counter. I think it's called like light salt or Morton salt, that type of thing. But you need to have a method to replenish your electrolytes. And this becomes especially important with children. I know they sell Pedialyte. I haven't looked at the contents of that stuff in years, but um, it's important to be able to rehydrate people. Like the gentleman you were referring to, like you said, you know, people don't die of the sea in cholera. They don't die of cholera proper. Cholera doesn't kill people. It's, it's the diarrhea. It's the dehydration. It's the electrolyte imbalances that ensue as a result of the cholera infection, which manifests in the digestive tract. And one of the reasons why children die from diarrhea worldwide, it's the number two cause worldwide, is because they do not have hardly any fluid volume to spare. So when the kids start getting the runs, it's you really got to intervene quickly because within a span of 48 hours, they can go critical on you very, very, very fast. And it's probably the same with the elderly uh, and adults oh, yeah. that don't really maybe hydrate as often as they should. And this will sound f- silly to some people, but another thing I've learned is that you got to have straws in your first aid kit sometimes to get people to drink. When they're nauseated, they have a hard time picking something up, lifting it, and drinking it. Or if they're really in a bad way, they have a hard time sitting up and swallowing. And uh, it's it, it's like something you would never think of 
other than maybe to use for like you know the guy that thinks he's going to do tracheotomies with a steak knife. <laughs> but but it, it's it, you know it's a serious thing. If you you can have all the water in the world, if I can't get it into you, and if I don't have the medical skill set and the equipment to do an IV and, and drip uh, fluids into you, I've got to get you to take it orally. And something like a straw, as low tech as it is, can be a, a life saving implement. Mm-hmm. I would I would definitely agree with that. We take that for granted so much in the hospital, especially with our little old grannies. <laughs> they, you know, I mean, they'll ask for their straws every few hours. They want a new straw or they want a new drink. The straw, it's it's the things that you, you don't think you miss them until you don't have them. And then you're like, man, why did I not buy a pack of straws? Really? <laughs> it was 99 cents at the dollar store. Yeah, absolutely. So the other thing you mentioned is respiratory infection. And I think that... In uh, a major disaster, if we ever have the, you know, the, the big one or one of the big ones, even if it's not pandemic that causes it, once sanitation goes down, once services go down, things like that, one of the big uh, things that people fear is flu uh, and anything that can result, as you were saying, in pneumonia. So what are some of the things we can keep as, you know, because I can't run down to the pharmacy and get a prescription or in this type of scenario. What are some of the things I can keep and do to be prepared to deal with that contingency? If you can't store anything else, I would store Mucinex. Generic Mucinex is guaifenescent. That is just fine. And generics, provided they have the same level of active ingredient in them, that's just fine. Mucinex or guaifenescent, the generic, is very, very important to store, in my opinion, because it will, as, as an expectorant, it will help break up the congestion in the mucus within the bases of the lungs especially, and it will make it easier for the person to cough out. And that, it sounds kind of gross, and there is a reason I did not go into respiratory, because I couldn't, I hate that stuff. (laughs) But if you can prevent the stuff from pooling in the lungs, which, by the way, is where most of your alveoli are, most of the little filtration sacs that allow you to adequately get oxygen into your blood, they are located in the back bases of the lungs. So, of course, because of gravity, the way it works, that's the first place where fluid pools. And if that happens, then you really get into trouble. So storing mucinex, guafenesin, also storing... Things like menthol drops, Hall's drops, benzocaine drops, like chloroseptic drops, things to soothe the throat because you can get, if you cough so much, then you get irritated and then you can get bronchitis and then it just, it, it just gets pretty uncomfortable quite quickly. And another thing to consider here, one of the things that folks forget about is, you know, everybody, or not everybody, but many people have leftover narcs or whatever from dental surgery. One of the most potent cough suppressants is codeine cough syrup. And if you look, if it looks like somebody's just having a horrible, horrible time there, uh, very frequently doctors will prescribe codeine cough syrup to help suppress the, the, the coughing so that the person can get some relief. But another a skill, if you will, because I've heard you talk before, in America especially, we are so gear-heavy. We are so into the consumeristic mentality that we completely neglect our skill set and that learning process within the skill set. Something that is basic, that every person needs to be able to do, is percussion therapy. All that is is a fancy name for banging on the back. You bang on the person's back to, to physically, mechanically break up the mucus, which if you pair that in concert with guafenesin and... Uh, and breathing deeply for the person who is who is, has an active respiratory infection, that can really, really help them turn the corner. So there's an easy skill set there. Learn how to bang on somebody's back. <laughs> awesome. And, I mean, these are things that, like, 
the average grandmother did for their kids 50 years ago, and I guess we've gotten lazy and out of touch with, and we, we don't do those things anymore, even steam vapors and stuff. A couple things you hit on there. One, I could not agree more on coating. I remember it's probably about 15 years ago, I had a, um, a cough I just couldn't shake, and I had gone days without any relief, and my wife had some leftover coating from something, and I mean, it immediately suppressed the cough, and it's too bad we can't get that over the counter anymore, but I mean, there were too many guys, I guess, there was a guy named Popeye, was his nickname, old man in Minersville, PA, where I grew up, that basically every day went down to the liquor store, and or not the liquor store, the, the grocery store, and got a, a bottle of NyQuil with coating in it back when you could buy it over the counter, and would sit on his bed and drink that, so I guess that's... That's what's ruined that. But but I hear you on, on the skill sets. And, I mean, is there any particular training available to civilians that you would recommend that, like, everybody take? And maybe there's one step above that, the person that's, like, going to be, like, you know, if they don't have a medical practitioner in the family that's going to be, like, the heads up for the medical stuff in their family or group, maybe a next step they could take? Every person needs to be able to do CPR. That's kind of that sounds kind of blasé, but I mean, it, every person needs to be able to do CPR. If you are really, and I have people ask me this all the time, you know, what should I go into? What what should I do? If you, if you could only pick one route for training in medicine that you could, you know, also make a job, and what would it be? And I would honestly say an EMT. An EMT has a lot of skill sets that I just don't have. They innovate people regularly. They do a lot. They do first interventive. In interventional care uh, more than I do. I get them once they're stabilized. <laughs> um, but you can, honestly, the Internet here is our friend. And you can acquire a whole lot of knowledge just based on watching YouTube videos. You can do research. Wikipedia, for all of its flaws, is a nice starting point because it gives you an idea, a very general base level familiarity with a whole lot of different disease processes. And, you know, rather than delegate our thinking to the authorities or to the people who are smarter than we are, it behooves us to get out there and do the the finger work, if you will, on the internet to search this stuff out for ourselves. And provided that you have a decent knowledge base on the ground level mechanisms that cause respiratory problems and, and and digestive problems. If you can have a groundwork level familiarity with this stuff and you're a person of decent intelligence, you can network these issues together in your mind so that when you see somebody coughing and you see that their lips are turning blue, you see, hmm, they're not getting oxygenated enough. Bet you if I listen to their lungs, they've got stuff in there. Hmm, probably need to bang on it, that type of stuff. So you can acquire skill sets are learned, but the knowledge the base level familiarity that will inform your skill sets, you can get that free online. So I would encourage people to do that. Let's let's turn a corner to a little bit, you know, let, let's get a little bit on the dark side, I guess you'd say, with if we ever have the really big disaster, the nationwide thing, whether it's caused by a grid failure or it's caused by an economic collapse or, you know, an initial pandemic. And, and, and I don't think people understand that if there's a pandemic, there's one disease. But all the things that come with it, we get other diseases. What are your biggest concerns as a healthcare professional when you look ahead and say, if we ever really have a major societal collapse, what are the biggest things we're going to have to deal with? I did a video called Collapse and the Subsequent Death Waves, which I think addresses this in, in a base level if folks want to, to refer back to this at some point. Quite soon after 
something like a complete grid down situation, I estimate that you're going to lose anywhere between 10 and 20 percent of the population within a month. Because let's let's take this here for a second. Let's parse the population out. And let's think about here the people who are over the age of, of 80 who have X number of meds that they take, who have to have their oxygen tanks. I mean, the, the quite easily you can come up with 10 to 20 percent of the population that will not make it if they don't get their meds every day. And they will not make it if they if the grid goes down. They're grid dependent. And this is nothing new in the sense that there are people who are who who cannot function outside of this. Up until quite recently, and this is kind of dark, but up until quite recently, these people would already be dead. And it's sad to say, but there, and this also goes for people who have diseases like, for instance, kids, this is sad to say, like kids with cystic fibrosis and things like this. People who have diseases who depend on regular medical intervention Honestly, these people, in my opinion, are probably not going to make it very long. This also goes for brittle diabetics, which is why I say, folks, if, you, if you've if you got a myriad of health issues, if you can lose some weight and control your diabetes, that's probably the biggest thing in your favor that you can do for yourself. Um, the diabetes issue, we just have a very sick population in the United States. We are we are health sinners, if you will. We, we do a whole lot of bad stuff to our bodies through what we eat, through what we drink, and through our lifestyle. Let me hold you on the diabetes for a second because sure. this is a question I get all the time and I honestly never have a good answer for. Most of them that are insulin dependent say the most they could possibly ever store is about 60 days worth of insulin. And what do they do if we get into a point where they can't get it? And for the type 2 diabetic, I'm, I'm completely with with you, um, a lot of those people could completely reverse their condition with lifestyle and health choices. It might take a while, but they could do it. Some have gone too far, but many that are either pre-diabetic or, or just became diabetic, um, they could fix this. But there's people that are born with the condition, and, the, and, and you might not have a better answer. My answer has always been, if you can't get to a place where you can get your insulin, you're probably not going to make it. And I hate giving people that answer, but I don't have a different one. Uh, yep, that, that's that's the abject reality here. And but there is there is some success that's being documented with using cinnamon, the the spice with with using cinnamon concurrently with meals as a method of controlling blood sugar. And I have seen it in in my practice. I have seen it work for people, but it's been in concert with other with other changes in their life. So there's some confounding factors there. But honestly, if you've got nothing else, cinnamon and organic apple cider vinegar are some things that you can that you can use to help control your diabetes but long term long term it's not it's not going to be a good situation but let us let's reflect back to 100 100 or so years ago people who were who were diabetic they died by the time they were 45 usually so and that's really morbid and it's sad to say but I I don't believe in sugarcoating stuff for people. If I can look somebody in the eye and tell them, you know, the way you're heading right now, it's going to probably result in your demise if we have a bad situation on a national level. But you can turn. Now, you can turn, you can choose a different path and try and make some choices that will alleviate that for you. So, mm. Well, I'm giving them, I guess, the best answer I can, then, if you can't better it. Um, and I just don't like telling people you don't have an answer, but some of them don't. I mean, like I said, especially type twos, you're right, there's lifestyle choices. But a person born, uh, well, a type one, maybe not born with it, but, you know, child onset stuff, 
Um, mm-hmm. Like you said, they usually just didn't make it in the past. And it is interesting to hear the stuff on cinnamon. I'm going to point something out for folks that may not know this. A lot of the stuff out there on the market that you see and they label it cinnamon is not cinnamon. Uh, there's a true cinnamon, and then there is a, uh, I don't even know what the real plant's called, but they sell it by and large and call it cinnamon, and I would imagine you need to get the real stuff. Um, not that it's real expensive or anything, but you need to make sure you're not buying this. Uh, I don't know what the other plant is. I can't remember, but I remember reading about it. Um, let me ask you uh, kind of another question with this. If um, we get into this long-term um situation where modern medicine is not available. You're a pretty big believer in not throwing away medications in in favor of alternative stuff, but there are all alternative things that we can do as well that may be more highly available in the herbal or supplement world. You gave me some ideas for, you know, kicking a cold with zinc and some stuff like that. What are, what are your thoughts in that world as a whole? I tend to view the herbal and also the vitamin and nutritional treatments for things those are my first line and i from just from a medical standpoint i like to use those first (laughs) and i like to really dial back on the pharmaceutical stuff just because many of these drugs we just don't have any long-term studies on now they can say their long-term study is one year or five years but you know whatever i i think that there is wisdom in in storing herbs, but I, I would not store herbs alone. If I had the option to store s- select amounts of uh, pharmaceuticals and different things, I, I would just store them both. I mean, why would you limit your options from my standpoint? Um, but there, there's a lot of different things you can do. Peppermint for, well, I'm not, I'm not a very accomplished herbalist, but I mean, there are things that you can do to help soothe the stomach. Ginger for upset stomach. Ginger, I've had actually better success with ginger in my own personal use than Zantac. So, for upset stomach. So, but l- let's evaluate here something as well. We know historically from different medical studies and whatnot, people are different. People, the way they react to medicines is different. It, it med- Medicine reaction, a drug may work for one person, and it won't work at all for another person. Now, there are factors in between there, but I'm one of these people who, you know, give me 10 people lined up, and I can tell you probably half of them won't respond to certain drugs. They will need more or higher amounts of different ones. For instance, redheads. Redheads are notorious for their <laughs> for having to titrate uh, anesthesia and also pain medicine with them because they they're something about them, the way their metabolic pathways work. They just don't respond the way that, quote unquote normal people do to uh, different pain meds and whatnot. So I'm I'm all for storing a myriad of, of different things and everything from apple cider vinegar to ginger to uh, go right down the list. Tincture of elderberry I and mean, just the list goes on and on. Very cool. Um can we maybe chat a little bit now at this is one of my big things. I get these people um, who like, yeah, I just bought a field hospital kit or something like that. And I'm like, what are you going to do with it? You know, cause you, you, you talk about how, you know, it's a lot more exciting to talk about, you know, fixing somebody with a gunshot wound. But if you don't really have a, 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 a you know, real strong understanding of surgical medicine, you're not going to do a whole lot with a guy with a gunshot wound to the chest. that has got maybe three hunks of buckshot in his left lung. Um, and even a doctor, 
that is, uh, you know, there and able to use this stuff, he's going to have limits to what he can do with a field hospital kit. These things like, you know, getting fluid and blood into the, into the person if they're bleeding out and, and just other equipment. I mean, there's a limit to what we can do, right? Absolutely. And there, I don't know what it is, but there seems to be this fallacy circulating within the mindset of the prepper movement that if we have stuff and if we watch a video or perhaps two on a good day, that magically we will be able to execute that that given skill set and that's just not true you don't default to your level of training you default to your level of mastery so you can take me a nurse who's done psych orthopedic and and labor and delivery you put me in an intensive care unit i'm lost i'm lost and i'm i'm a bachelor's nurse i went through school i I went through one of the best schools in my area and it it's overwhelming for me (laughs) if somebody hands me a surgical kit and and there's a dude bleeding out, honestly, I, my tendency is to not want to do stuff because from from where I sit, I'm going to be doing more damage there because I don't know what I'm doing. I don't have enough familiarity with it. Now, I believe in miracles, so things can always happen, but I'm sure not going to bank the, the majority of, of, of my hope on something randomly coming to me. But let's also evaluate here, too, the wisdom of resource utilization. If, for instance, a, a, a medical kit costs $200 for instruments, and let's not think, you know, let's, let's also remember that they've got to be sterilized and whatnot. If you've got $200 there, I would infinitely rather spend that on on things like like mucinex or wound dressings, stuff like that, it, because those, from where I sit, are more realistic, more realistic scenarios than perhaps a, a gunshot wound. Now, each person has to evaluate where they sit in life and what their most likely scenarios are, but I just don't think it's wise to assume that because it was written in a particular book that one person read the NATO emergency war surgery manual and, and just happened to have the right, the right tools there that they were successfully able to extract it, but it's just nonsense to me. It's really, really glitzy. Right, it's really, really glitzy, and it gets us very excited. It engages all of our senses, and our adrenaline goes up when we see oh, surgical kit, etc. But the reality here is, folks, that most people who who die in third world scenarios, unless there is some kind of ethnic cleansing or warfare going on, they don't die from gunshot wounds. They die from respiratory infections, diarrhea, and a myriad of other things. But wound care, skin integrity maintenance, respiratory infections, and diarrhea, those are the things that are going to kill you. And it behooves us to prep and to allocate our resources based upon our most readily anticipated scenarios. What about nutrition as well? I mean, a lot of these things, the people that die of these things you're talking about, they die because they become nutritionally deficient. Their body is, you know, not capable of of fighting them off. So how important is nutrition to our medical, uh, let's say a self-medical insurance, you know? I mean, everybody talks about they want the government to come up with some magical program and wave a wand and, well, I'll just show up and Patriot Nurse will take care of me if I'm sick and and you'll get paid a million dollars. 
dollars to do it and we're all happy and, and that ain't going to happen. But there's some level where we have to say beyond personal responsibility, there's a certain amount of what I consider personal insurance. And, and there's certain things that we could be doing, uh, like you said, shedding a few pounds, but there's probably some other things as well that we could do that if we do end up sick and we are without care and we have to give self-care, we're better suited as individuals to get through that, right? Absolutely. Nutrition here is huge. And in fact, the World Health Organization, which I have quite a few issues with some of the things they do, um, the World Health Organization reckons that in the U5 mortality, which is, you know, the children who die under the age of five worldwide, that the diseases of malnutrition are pretty far up there. They can't seem to come to an agreement betwixt them and other reigning organizations. But the, the diseases of malnutrition, they are they are numerous. And let's think here just for a minute about vitamin D deficiency. This is an epidemic within our country right now, vitamin D deficiency, especially within the winter because it's cold. People don't go outside. They don't get the sun on their skin. Vitamin D deficiency will set you up for a plethora of problems, everything from putting you at greater risk for contracting upper respiratory infections, greater risk for contracting colon cancer, a decreased metabolic rate. There's there's a ton of different things here. So from one standpoint, let's evaluate here our food preps. I see so many people online, they'll show you their respective pantries, and they've got, I don't know, 700 pounds of rice and 300 pounds of beans and four cans of spinach and two cans of carrots. And you're like, dude, <laughs> you're going to have a wonderful set of complete proteins, but you are woefully deficient in nutrients, friend. <laughs> and, and right there, you can live. Yes, you can. You can live on beans and rice, but that will set you up for for nutrient deficiencies, which in turn will put you at a greater risk for contracting disease and will make it harder for you to shake the disease once you're in it. You know, I completely agree with that. In fact, I think... I've often said that I think modern medicine gets too much credit for extending life expectancies. If we look at modern sanitation and we go say, okay, we're going to we acknowledge the at least the legitimate vaccinations and things like doctors washing their hands before a, a mother gives birth, and, and we take away the child childhood deaths from that, that the life expectancy really hasn't changed that much. And then the, uh, to me, the big kind of uh, Fulcrum, lever, lever, fulcrum in the middle of it all is what is the person's nutritional intake? And if we look at the intake, you know, well, I did this experiment one time and I went and said, well, how long did, you know, how long did people live around the, the formation of the United States? And I went and got like 30 of the biggest founders of the United States, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, all the Ben Franklin. And the average age of death was, was 72. Uh, which for a white American male today is not far off what, you know, the average death age is. And what people said is, well, they had the best medical care and they were rich and they had, you know, all this great stuff. And I'm like, come on, guys, a, a guy like Franklin or Jefferson or, or Washington, they might have lived better than the common man, but they didn't live anywhere near as good as we live today. But what they had was a diet with a reasonable amount of protein, a good balance of nutrition. Their houses were relatively warm and dry. And when we put that equalizer in there, and if you get past being a kid, we have kind of a finite limit as mortals, but that food supply, like you're saying, rice and beans, I know plenty of places where people live on it, so yeah, you can, but they die of all these conditions you're talking about. When I was in and the aging process, when I was in Honduras um, in the military, we were way out in the middle of nowhere. These people had like zero real stress in their life other than, am I going to eat tomorrow? Um, but none of the stuff we deal with that you would think cause heart disease and all. But when you looked at a woman who was in her like late 20s, they looked like they were 50. 
and it was hard living, but it was more to me they didn't get certain nutrients into their lives, and that has to make you more susceptible to every illness and disease out there, right? Oh, absolutely. Either, think of it this way. If you were repairing a car, let's say that, well, I don't know hardly anything about cars, <laughs> so I can't give a too good metaphor, but let's say that you were repairing a car, for instance, okay? If you are trying to rebuild an engine and you're missing five or six key components, your engine's not going to run. You can put the car in neutral and push the thing, but you're not going to get very much movement here that's internally driven from the car. So I don't know why we think that we can buck that. And furthermore, I don't know why we think that we can eat dead, packaged, non, non, how should we say, non-energetic, non-animated, if you will, non-life filled food and 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 not incur these diseases of quote unquote civilization like heart disease and cancer and diabetes and things like that. So eating well, folks, eating eating well will put you on good footing. And if you if you can give your body what it needs, if you can give your body the building blocks that it needs, it will be able to weather the storm. Because its foundation is strong, right? For instance with a house, if your if your foundation is cracked yeah, you know, you can, you can weather through a rainstorm or two, but over time, that cracking foundation is going to affect the structural integrity of the entire house. And it's the same way with us. We are what we eat. So nutrition here is, is absolutely paramount. I would wholeheartedly concur with that. What are your thoughts on all of these dadgone GMOs that we have now? You know, genetically modified corn and then we spray it with atrazine, uh, and, and, and we have a pesticide in it that kills the corn worm and then we spray it with atrazine, which is a weed killer. And we say, don't worry about it. Just eat it. Or we take canola and we, we spray it with, we genetically modify it. Then we spray it with Roundup, which we know doesn't break down. And people are eating these things. Do you think that there's a link between stuff like this and kind of the spike in modern diseases? I I would say so. And my basis for coming to that conclusion is way, way back when I took AP Biology in high school. And I will never forget this. It showed this lovely little cycle here of the principle of biological magnification, mm-hmm. which states that any foreign substance introduced within a system will increase in its concentration the further it goes through permutations. Basically, you know, you spray something on the grass, the rabbit eats the grass, you know, one part in, in a million. Well, fox eats rabbit, one part in 10,000, you know, and it just, and it just goes and goes and goes and goes. And to me, this makes perfect sense because we have so many contaminants within our food supply and even within our produce. I and mean, that's the sad thing is that people, bless their hearts, you know, they, someone tries to do right and they try to get off packaged dead food and then they eat the produce in the market. Well, Lord, they're eating, they're eating GMO corn. They're eating GMO tomatoes sprayed with pesticides and, and it goes on and on. So on one level, it's like, yes, they're trying to do better for themselves, but they're also incurring a fresh level of contaminants that they perhaps didn't have before. So, again, here the importance of good food, high-quality food, clean food, and I would try and add GMO-free stuff, too. It's a smart thing. Regardless of whether or not the, quote-unquote, evidence is out there, it's a wise thing. And common sense would dictate that it is so, right? If If we were to spray something... Well, for instance, you see people, my grandmother used to do this, bless her heart. She would spray when she was cleaning the counters. She would spray Lysol on the counters. But you can see the particles, just they're going into the food. And I'm like, I don't want to eat that. But how is it any different, right? How is it any different 
when we go to the store, we know that there's been stuff sprayed on these tomatoes, and yet we eat them because it's presented to us and it's marketed to us in such a way that we are willing to dismiss our common sense in order to partake of it. You know, it's a great point there. And, and like you're talking about the trophic levels there, right, with the accumulation up. And it's something I never thought of before. And, I mean, it's a big reason. I guess it's a it's a bigger reason now that I think about it that I'm such a fan of free-range and organic meats because I never really thought about this. Well, well it's fine. I try to keep everything corn-related out of my home unless I know it's organically grown and it's not GMO. And as bad as GMO is, I'm more concerned with, okay, now it's GMO, and then you've sprayed it with this crap. But if I'm eating, if I'm eating beef and they say, well, we don't use the GMO corn for human food, we feed it to cows – well, now the cow eats the corn that's completely uh, contaminated with the atrazine, and the cow bioaccumulates it. And when I eat the cow, I'm actually consuming more of the atrazine per kilogram consumed than per kilogram of corn. And I've never really thought about that till this moment right now, but it makes perfect sense because it's the same thing they tell you with ocean fish. Mercury levels are higher at the higher predator. Mercury in a tuna is much higher than mercury in an anchovy because the tuna eats the fish that eats the anchovy, and by the time it bioaccumulates up the chain, so not only, so great Monsanto, not only are you spraying our food and, and genetically modifying it, you're putting it into our beef, you're putting it into our poultry, you're putting it into our pork, and you're bioaccumulating it at a higher level. Wonderful. And then they, they put the, the antibiotic, excessive antibiotics and everything else in there. So, yeah, I think that taking control of your food supply is a huge thing that we can all do uh, to maybe deal with this stuff better in the future. But I guess there's, you know, one of the things we should talk about before we end up wrapping up here is basic hygiene and hygiene products as well. Like, I, got, I was interviewed like two years ago uh, by a newspaper, and they said, is there anything that you store that people kind of think it's, it's funny that you store it? You know, it's, it's like, like an eccentric thing. And I said, well, you know, I store a bunch of, pre, uh, of, of coffee beans so I can have my coffee, and I have a pretty big wine rack. And that's what they were looking for. But I also said I store things like deodorant, shampoo, soap. Uh, all of these personal hygiene products, and I had a radio DJ that interviewed me after he read that, and he said, "So if there's, if there's you know, if we have the apocalypse, I can come to your house and get uh, a stick of right guard." And I'm like, "Dude, think about." Ten people having a shelter in place together, uh, and, and no one has the ability to take a bath or at least use some deodorant. I mean, there's a lot to be said for that hygiene factor as well, right? Mm-hmm, absolutely. And even let's evaluate the psych factor here too. One of the things folks don't realize is that the sense, the sense of the five senses that is most closely associated with memory and with emotive uh, or emotional draw is smell, and this is why. That you can talk to people who are adults now and they will remember, oh, this, they'll walk into a place, this smells just like my grandmother's house. This smells just like the morgue that I got trapped in when I was two years old, you know? <laughs> and there's a lot to be said for that. This is one of the things that people do not think about when they talk about, okay, there are going to be X number of people at my bug out location or whatever, and, and they have not allocated for, number one, for sanitation for these people. I mean, human waste is nasty in and of itself, but when it piles up, I mean, that's, it's just just gross, yeah. And also bo. I mean, in America, we are so used to being able to take our showers twice and even three times a day, and not smelling like 
people, <laughs> not smelling like people, but smelling like fragrances, which there's nothing wrong with that. And everybody likes to smell nice. But it's the things, it's the little things that get to you, that wear on your mind whenever you are in an already stressed situation that can push you over the edge. That dripping noise from the faucet that drives people crazy now or that click, click of the clock, things like that. It's the little things, including smell and including grime and, and feeling dirty and feeling gross and feeling yucky. Those are the things that can really push people over from a psych standpoint as well. You know, that makes me think of two stories that kind of drive the point home. One is the old story about the the the, the saying of don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I don't know if you've ever heard where that came from, but it came from the days when basically the family would take a bath once every couple of weeks. And dad would get first crack at the water, and then mom would get it, and then the kids down. And the last person to get the water, which probably should have been the first one, was the baby. Uh, but it was based on who did the most for the house, you know. And... Um, they're saying don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because the water was so daggone nasty by the time you put the baby in it, the baby disappeared. Uh, and, and that just is a reality from a couple hundred years ago when you didn't just turn the faucet on and you didn't have a hot water here. And then the other one with human smell. And this is something that, that I learned as a young man in the military. We'd go to the field as what they call opposing force for military operations. And we'd be out there for a week or two setting things up. And, you know, you know, you're taking a bath in your, your helmet with a, with a sponge at best to keep from, you know, having things rot your armpits and other places. And we'd be out there for a couple of weeks. And then these guys would come out that we were going to basically harass while they were, you know, going in fire blanks at them and just make their life miserable while they were out there trying to do their mission. And as soon as they came into the area, we knew where they were there, not because they smelled bad, because we smelled like the jungle and they couldn't smell us. If they were close to us, like next to you, they'd smell you. But in the jungle, they weren't going to smell you. You could smell them if the wind was right from a mile away. And that's not an analogy. That's a literally, you could go, Hmm, somebody's using suave, aloe suave. And you could smell it because it was so foreign to be out there. And that says something about what we really smell like and this hygiene stuff. Um, what are like, what are some critical things you think need to be in homes to deal with this? How does a person deal with human waste? I mean, it's gross, but we got to do with it. Yeah, uh, latrines, <laughs> <laughs> latrines, bags, bleach, 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 bleach. And, uh, from just from an antiviral standpoint. And vinegar is not a bad idea either. There's a whole lot of uses for that. There is, on my most recent video on the survival lessons from the Haitian cholera epidemic, I included within the description box a link to a couple of different PDFs which deal with how to contain and, and, and deal with, you know, post-mortem care, human waste, this type of thing. And, and bleach is something that you've got to have. And every one of these particular PDFs, especially that they were focused towards medical professionals setting up a hospital. So, I mean, this is for, for higher traffic areas. In every single one of those, bleach was a requirement, right? So bleach is a good thing to have. Soap, even just general soap, one of my bones to pick with the medical community is that we put triclosan in everything. And it's, you know, that, that, an antimicrobial agent that's in our soap, and it it doesn't really work. It, the the cleaning agent is really it's the depolarization of cell membranes that's caused by the soap, by the actual soap, and also by the sloughing off of dead skin cells by the friction of of washing your hands. So just regular soap, lye soap, Castile soap, whatever, soap and bleach 
Yeah, that's a good thing to store. I have a very good quantity of bleach at my house and also of, of different soaps, dish soaps, that type of thing as well. So soap and bleach, it's a good thing. Very cool. Uh, completely agree. Another one um, that I picked up from Ron Hood was get a five-gallon bucket, a bunch of garbage bags, and a few big jugs of that blue stuff for chemical toilets. And, you know, you drop every time you use it, you put a few extra ounces of that in there, and as it fills up, you you deal you know you get rid of it as best you can. It's not an ideal situation, but I mean, I guess the point here is, and I kind of want to talk to you this as we get ready to close up today. There are things that could cause it. Like all the stuff we're talking about is not generally what we think we need to worry about in America. If I get sick, I'm gonna go to the doctor, or you know maybe down to see the nurse practitioner down at Care Now or something like that. If I don't have insurance and want to pay cash, or if I get really sick, I'm gonna go insurance or not. I'm going to the emergency room, and no matter what any bleeding heart on the TV says, if I show up there with a yield sign in my spleen, you guys are gonna take care of me and try to put me back together. Um, but there are things that could make us have to deal with this stuff on our own. Um, what are some of the big things out there that you just as a, as a person, as a prepper, you know, even outside of the medical arena, are concerned with actually being a big threat to us? The first one on my list is something that's not commonly talked about, but I would say that we are long overdue for a pandemic. We are long overdue for it, and that is that is certainly a possibility. The next one is, well, we're having it right now. There's six inches of snow on the ground here in Tennessee. You hear the word snow. It's a four-letter word. Here people rush out to Walmart and empty the shelves of milk, eggs, and, and bread. So, I mean, that's a contingency plan. But as far as a bad, bad stuff, I would say... An earthquake in California, let's, and actually I was talking with my father about this. An earthquake in California, a bad one. California is already a huge economy in and of itself. It's, a, I think it's like one of the top ten in the world. I can't remember. But California You're right. Is it's it's number eight. It's the eighth largest economy on the planet. Right, right, exactly. A bad earthquake in California. I mean, that place is already in trouble, but that could really be the nail in the coffin. And if California went under from from a destruction standpoint, can you imagine what would happen there? It'd be like Katrina times ten with all the gangs and stuff there. That would be a disaster. And folks, to That's drive to drive her point home, California's economy is thirteen percent of the economy of the United States. Thirteen <laughs> percent. Yep, that, that's more than a tithe, folks. Thirteen percent is more than ten, and that could certainly, if it was distressed, that could that could bring you down. Especially when you consider the other the repercussions as far as violence and disruption of supply lines because of the the Pacific ports, etc. And I don't. I'm naturally being of thorough Scots-Irish descent. I am very distrustful of the government anyway. Um, and I, the healthcare thing could be an issue. I'm just, I don't know. I, I tend to change every few months, just kind of appraising the situation. Dynamic though life is, you know, you kind of have to make some contingency plans. But a pandemic is a big one, and pe- that would knock people flat. They wouldn't know what to do. A bad earthquake in California, that's something else too. And also the New Madrid fault here, um, and, well, in West Tennessee. I mean, that's a big deal. The last time that thing went off, it rang church bells in Boston and cracked sidewalks in Washington, D.C., and that's it runs along, you know, West Tennessee. So that if if something went off there, that could be that could be an issue. But the most realistic and likely scenarios are the ones that are the mini disasters. 
And I th- you you have touched on this many times, but I mean we need to prep based on our most likely anticipated scenarios. It's good to have a multifaceted approach, and we should be prepared for bad things and for the worst things too. Um, but I think it 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 does us well to every now and then take the tinfoil hat off and and set it aside for a few minutes to breathe. <laughs> Absolutely, I, I 100% agree with that. I would sorry for the pause there. I was looking up your YouTube channel uh, to see if there's anything else I need to get out. We, I do want to make sure people can find your YouTube channel. Again, I'm going to put a link to the Patriot Nurses YouTube channel on uh, on today's show notes. But you want to tell them what your YouTube handle is? I mean, shocking as it might be. <laughs> The Patriot Nurse, yes, with the article in front of it, The Patriot Nurse, or The, The, or The Patriot Nurse. <laughs> you know, you brought up an interesting thing um, with uh, with the, the weather, and last year, not this year, but last year, there was an ice storm that you probably got hit with pretty hard. I got hit with it here. It went from um, down near El Paso and touched uh, the New England states. In a one continuous pink line on the radar when it was coming across. And the only thing that made that storm in any way tolerable and bearable was that it was a very narrow storm. If that storm had been 300 miles wide instead of the 50 miles wide that it was in most areas, it would have literally blanketed Texas to Massachusetts in, in ice for weeks or more. And even with that, there were people in your area, northwest Arkansas, Kentucky, that were without power and electricity and in the cold for three weeks. If you're stuck there, three weeks is a long time for a downward trend for the the human body, is it not? Oh, I I would agree (laughs) wholeheartedly, which is one of the reasons why I have a myriad of fuel sources so that I can cook my food. I regularly practice eating cold food just so I'm kind of of I'm kind of braced for it if if slash when that comes. Um, But you know, when when you are expending that much caloric energy on just keeping warm. That doesn't leave a whole lot for doing too much else, especially if if you don't have a lot of um, clothing or, or if you're not really familiar with with how to keep warm. I can't tell you how many people don't even know to cover their head. And this this is this is kind of an epidemic within our country. We we just don't think anymore, and it behooves us all to take stock of our everyday activities of of daily living and to kind of play. Worst case scenario with each one of them. And I would actually recommend for people, if you go on YouTube, you can watch, it's uh, with Robert Fisk, it's a Bosnian War documentary, and there's four parts. If you watch the first two parts, it focuses heavily on the medical side of things, but you will note very frequently <laughs> that the people who received gunshot wounds in the Bosnian War, what were they doing? They were gathering firewood fuel. They were gathering their their containers, and they were going and getting water. They were going and standing for food. They were making themselves visible because they were trying to complete their activities of daily living. If you can make the completion of your activities of daily living an easy thing to do and in a somewhat self-contained manner, you can you can increase your overall comfort and your chances for survival in any scenario. Absolutely. A last thing I want to kind of revisit with you here that we've talked about is pandemic, because like you, 
it's on my big three list. It, it's it, and in fact, it's probably my number one concern, even greater than economic collapse. I have no doubt that sooner or later the economy of the United States is going to collapse. It has to. These idiots have yep. just. But when and how long it's going to take, and exactly what it's look like, I'm not a soothsayer, and I don't have a working crystal ball, and I can't tell you what it's going to look like. When a pandemic hits, a real one. I know what it's going to look like. I mean, we can just look to the past and go, what it looked like before, it's going to look like that now. And it's it's really bad. Um, and the higher population densities, the worse that it becomes. Everybody got all up in a wad about H1N1 uh, when that came around. And, and you know, I for the, like when it first hit, I said, well, we've got to wait and see. And then a week later, I'm like, okay, they're overplaying it. But my concern was that they would overplay it Every Congress clown and his, and his mother would come out and tell us, wash your hands, sneeze in your sleeve, like we need that from anybody other than our kindergarten teachers. And then <laughs> they would make such a big, they would cancel events, and they did all this. Everything I said they were going to do, they did. They canceled the Mayfair here, and it cost the city like $15 million. They canceled concerts in one city, and they were going on in the next. And all of this nonsense went on over it. My, and my concern was people would look at that, and then when we get hit with a real one, it's going to be like the boy that cried wolf. And everybody's going to go, oh, we did that, and that was nonsense. And, you know, they did that in the 70s, too, with the, the H1N1 that, that came up back then, and people got sick from the virus or from the inoculation, but they didn't get sick from the disease. And, you know, they said all these people died, but they were old people or immune-compromised people. But there are strains of, of not just flu, other things out there, are there not, that sooner or later, if we get a mutated, highly contagious strain, we've got a real problem on our hands, and... The, I guess what I want you to talk about is the fallacy that we we get from TV. You know, the doctor goes, "Oh God, it's a new disease," and he looks at his microscope and they see the little thing in there. And like thirty days later, they've got a proven vaccine put together. Doesn't work. I mean, it's on every freaking science fiction and disaster movie. I have a, you know, we can synthesize a virus uh, vaccine now or whatever. Doesn't work that way, does it? No. <laughs> and let's not forget here as well, okay? Viruses are not static genetic organisms, folks. They go through many generations of, 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 of cycles of birth and replication here. So within the span of a relatively, if you had something really virulent, if you had something pretty bad, by the time, let's just say that you even got a working vaccine, Let's just say that you got one of those. There's no guarantee that it would work for very much longer than ooh, a few weeks to a few months. I mean, if something was really bad, because that's kind of the nature of viruses is that they change and they mutate. Now, frequently they mutate into a, a, a less dangerous variant, but the possibility is, is certainly out there for something going bad. And let's just, for instance, let's reevaluate some of these older diseases that we have, quote unquote, eradicated, which... I'm pretty sure we have not. I'm sure that there are definite holdouts of, of strains of them somewhere. In the case of, let's say, for instance, um, measles. If measles comes back to a, to a certain level, I mean, this is one of the things that the World Health Organization puts on their top five for under five mortality in children. You could have, if it gets to a certain level, you could have it propagating to such a point where you could have a new mutation of, of, of a worse variety. In fact, 
uh, if we look at, for instance, this, the Haitian cholera epidemic here, let's, let's, you know, look back over there for a second. This particular variant, this was on the CDC's website, and you can see this on my most recent video. I give you the link to it. This particular variant of cholera is resistant to Cipro, folks. And Cipro for a while has been, oh, okay, you get something in your digestive tract, take Cipro, it'll knock it out. Folks, it's not doing that anymore. And we have some antibiotics that can work. But we, we, we're going to get burned. One of these days, we're going to get burned with it. And, and that's and happening with a lot of other things, right? I mean, Tamiflu, when that came out, oh, if you get the flu, <laughs> if, if you start to have symptoms, you take Tamiflu, and then you'll never get the flu, and it'll be okay. And, and the, the different claves of the flu are adapting to Tamiflu like faster than like anything they've ever adapted to before. It's almost like the more we meddle around with Mother Nature, the quicker it responds, and we're creating this kind of downward spiral. And there's there's like the M, M-, M- was it uh, MRSA? That that's a big oh, problem yeah. too right now. They have kids that are getting these infections, and you know, it used to be you got a boil or an abscess, and you go and it's gross and it hurts, and a doctor pops it, gives you some antibiotics, and it goes away. Well. There's people that are, depending on where they get and how bad it is, that have died from this stuff, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, most nurses, I, I'm, I'm sure your family will tell you this, too. I'm, sh- I'm sure most of us are, are colonized with it. If you've spent any time in clinicals at a hospital, you, you've taken care of patients, whether they have the label or not, for whether or not they've been culture positive for MRSA. Most of our population is, is has been exposed to it, in my opinion, by now. The question is, is will, will MRSA, will it behave like many other Variants of of difficult bacteria. Will it? Will there be a mutation uh, such that uh, we the population can become somewhat immune to it? Could, could we get herd immunity to MRSA? I don't know. Uh, it, it's it's something we're thinking about. But I think that our best chances for survival are not. And, and this kind of goes back to our overall concept of survivalism. What is what does it mean? Well, we need to be self-sufficient here on some level. We need to be independent on some level. If my dietary intake, if my nutritional intake is so poor that I have to rely on pharmaceuticals to maybe or maybe not help me kick something, that doesn't put me in a good situation. That doesn't give me options. My best options for ensuring my health are to stay at, at some kind of healthy weight, are to eat good, clean food, and to have an adequate nutritional intake. That is going to position you folks best to 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 help you overcome any encounter that you have with an infectious organism or with any disease process. If you're healthy and if you are feeding yourself good food, that will put you in the best situation to to hopefully surmount those things. Kind of one more, not to just scare the hell out of everybody. I'm just wondering if you've heard about this as well, that there, that now one of the other big threats that we're seeing, World, World Health is talking about this as well, is the emergence of uh, new forms and, and uh, drug-resistant forms of tuberculosis as well. And, I mean, that's a killer. Yes. That's, if yes, you can't absolutely. breathe, you're dead. I mean, that's... Absolutely. And, and unfortunately, the, the patient population that I currently deal with Tuberculosis is a problem because I, in my work, I regularly work with a very large Hispanic and migrant worker population. And having to do home visits, let me tell you, having to do home visits with this particular population, it will open your eyes because you will go to a single wide trailer where there are 20 people living in there. And I'm not exaggerating. And you have entire families living in a six by six room. 
And it's this is a problem because our the reason, regardless of whether or not we are you know all gung ho about government coding and things like that and government intervention, codes and ventilation codes and fire codes, folks, they were they were put there for a reason. And whenever you have large numbers of people living together in an enclosed space with low ventilation, you're going to have propagation of disease, especially respiratory disease. So when you pair that in concert with our kind of uh, cavalier outlook on dispensing antibiotics and antivirals, mm. this is this is a perfect storm waiting to happen here. And we are seeing drug-resistant tuberculosis in this country already, and that is going to continue to be a problem, especially when you pair it together with the epidemic of vitamin D deficiency, because the two big risk factors, folks, for contracting tuberculosis, low body weight and vitamin D deficiency. Well, you can keep... Go I was going to say, well, I'm glad you brought that back up, because I almost didn't go into that with you. You've mentioned it twice, and I wanted to get your thoughts on vitamin D as a whole. I think it is one of the most underutilized nutrients available today. Uh, you'd mentioned to me in an email the FDA is finally going to raise their their you know limitations on it or what have you. Um, but how important is vitamin D, and how 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 much do you feel that it should be part of people's, especially during this time of year with lower sunlight levels, part of their their kind of nutritional intake? It's huge. I would consider it as hand in glove with adequate water intake and adequate nutritional intake. I mean, that's that's part of it. Vitamin D. We are finding so much out about it. It's it's just incredible. Its implications on psych, by the way. I mean, it, the the regulatory impact it has on keeping us mentally fit, on keeping us metabolically fit. The impact it has on our pancreas, on on protecting against colon cancer, immune function. It's it's a miracle drug. I, I hate to say that, but I mean it it is a miracle drug. It's naturally occurring and humans were made we we were made to be outside, folks. That's one of the reasons why regard well depending on what you think about the way people are moving, the trend towards getting out in nature again and hiking and doing more outdoorsy activities, there's a reason, folks, that people love doing it. And part of it, I'm sure, is because of a consumeristic base to buy North Face jackets or something like that. But, <laughs> but, but it really does. It makes us feel great to be out in the sun. We have that warm glow on our skin afterwards. It, just, it feels great. And we were, we were created to be outside. So it, it's a good thing to incorporate regular sunlight in, into your daily habits, but also vitamin D intake. There, there's a zillion different ways you can get it, but vitamin D is very, very, very underscore important. I can't remember the name of the physician. I think he's from Australia, though, and he had done a lot of the research on vitamin D and skin cancer. And he said all of this, this, this fear of the sun is causing more skin cancer than ever. And he said there's basically multiple types of skin cancer, and there's two of them that are relatively easy to treat. Uh, and very few people ever die of, and those can be caused by overexposure to the sun. But one of the, the forms of melanoma that is the most vicious and virulent forms of skin cancer is actually prevented by vitamin D. And, of course, they all called him quacks, and he started asking questions like, well, if the sun's causing it, why do we have all these people getting uh, these melanomas on the bottom of their feet? Underneath their fingernails, <laughs> underneath their toenails, in in their on their head, underneath their hair, and we're you know we're telling dermatologists to go look in these places now to find these cancers, and we're finding the places where people get the least amount of sun is. And he's not, he's like, I'm not saying just go out there and burn yourself to a crisp, but when we start you know wearing wide brim hats and long sleeve shirts and we never get any sun on our skin, 
we're setting ourselves up for a variety of diseases, including skin cancer. And, and then you go, whether you think he's a, a, a tin hat nut or whatever, when you, when you say, well, okay, the sun's causing the cancer and the guy's got it on the bottom of his feet. I don't know about you. I don't get a lot of sun exposure to the bottom of my feet. The bottom of my feet have never been sunburned in my life. <laughs> yeah. People will, the, the medical establishment as it sits right now, in my opinion, especially with, within the Western world, definitely here in the United States, we do so much to impede the growth of true medicine. That's the thing that people forget. Oh my goodness, folks. People, they, they will make their whole, they will make the crux of their argument on a particular medical issue and they'll base it on research that's 10 years old. And this goes back and forth. Medicine, like education, is very fad-oriented. We get really, really fad at, oh, this new research, oh, well, and five years later, well, this new research completely upturns what we had before. But it seems like, especially when you turn on NBC or some of these other, you know, the talking heads, everyone is so absolutely sure of their position, of the rightness of their new research or whatever. But let's use common sense here, folks. The vitamins, vitamin D, sunlight, vitamin C, these things make sense. And intuitively, we know these things. We know that when we look at a nice, fresh orange and we compare that to a candied sugar orange, there is something in us that longs for that fresh, wonderful piece of produce because we know it's best for us. Whether or not we really have a craving for sugar at that time or the junk food, we know intuitively that that's healthy and that that's good for me. So I tend to view medicine within the scope of, okay, does this does this go hand in glove with what I already know to be true, what intuitively makes sense to me, and what has historically proven itself to be true time and time again. can't agree more. I mean, a, an example from the herbal world is comfrey. People have been eating comfrey for literally 10,000 years. It's been used to treat disease and illness for, again, 10,000 years. And then a few years ago, I guess about 20 years ago, it became a big health thing. All the health nuts were recommending comfrey, and people started eating it like it was like lettuce and eating it every day to excess. And then some research was done and said in this excessive amount, it can cause liver damage. So all of a sudden, there's all these warnings, don't eat comfrey. Doesn't matter that people ate it for 10,000 years. Don't matter it's been safely used for 10,000 years. Don't ma doesn't matter that I eat it all the time and I haven't fallen over dead. Doesn't matter that, that millions of people all over the world use comfrey and we can't find one person that died of liver disease and they say, oh, he ate comfrey to kill him. Doesn't matter. Oh, my God, no, do not eat comfrey. And everybody that sells it now has to put a warning label on it. And instead of saying, don't eat this every day like an idiot, they have to basically put on there, this will kill you if you eat it. And... The medical industry, I mean, you're inside it, you know it, my wife and I have some of our conflicts because I lean more toward the alternative and she's been in that mainstream for 25 years, but I believe that the stuff that's in there, and you tell me if you think I'm wrong, is dogmatic to the point of religion, where it doesn't, it's almost like, you know, it says in the Bible, and it's almost like it says in the physician's reference manual, and like you said, it could be from 1964, doesn't matter, it says it in there. It's the King James version of the PDR, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I, I would wholeheartedly agree with with your appraisal on that. It seems, and this is you actually. I've run into this quite a lot with with the birth scene. And folks, if you've never watched the business of being born, uh, I mean, I think it employs some scare tactics, but the information is pretty decent. We use scare tactics and we use this appeal to to emotion 
to to scare women into you know non necessary C sections and, and bunches of different things. But we do this also with scare tactics involved with some vaccinations and, and things like that as well. That oh, if you don't get this, your kid's going to drop dead at six months. Forget that you know they Hep B at two days old is just ridiculous in my opinion. But I mean that that's a story for another day. But we do the medical and and really if you want to think about it, it is a position of power. The physician, the white coat in Western culture is one of the top positions of power from a psychological standpoint and from a de facto, this is the way things work standpoint. If you've got a doctor and you line him up next to an engineer, people, regardless of if the doctor knows anything about engineering, if they've got a problem with some hydraulic, they'll go to the doctor just because he's got the white coat because he knows everything, doesn't he? He's kind of like like a demigod, if you will. Sure, why do they put so, the actors on TV in a white coat? They never say he's a doctor when they're advertising Lipitor or something else to destroy my liver in the name of saving my life and, and but the guy's got a white coat on and he's sitting there talking to a guy going and he's reading basically the ad out of the magazine to him like he's his doctor and, and that guy's not a doctor and the other guy isn't sick but our psychology plays on us that a doctor's making this recommendation that I take this crap that's going to basically destroy my liver in time and the kind of like we, we are over an hour now so I need to wrap up with you but You mentioned earlier about all these old people that are on their medications. I want your opinion on this. I think there's plenty of those people right now, if you cut their medication off, they will die, like you said early on. I also think there's a whole lot of them that would die if you cut their medication off that are only in that situation because we now have a pill for everything, and we have a pill for a pill for a pill, and if I give you something for 10 years, and you're old and I've been giving it to you for 10 years, even if you didn't really need it in the first place, By the time you get down the road a decade, and I've been putting this into your body, you've become dependent on it, and now you have to have it. But we have a lot of people on these maintenance medications that are there to please the shareholders of Pfizer and Merck, not really to keep people alive. I would agree with that wholeheartedly, and it's very, it's really unfortunate. And it used to be, folks, it used to be that the the staple the the particular that the population that we geared drugs to was was the elderly and the people who were aging and who were who were as a result of their aging who were garnering new conditions and new physical conditions but now we are seeing this be flipped 180 degrees and the the emerging market for drugs right now is not necessarily old people and not even necessarily baby boomers who is it it's children adolescence and if you get for instance watch generation rx folks i worked psych inpatient psych with an adolescent focus for three years i actually just quit that job um <laughs> but you get the kids started on some of these antipsychotics especially zyprexa they gain on average 30 pounds if they're depressed anyway they're probably having body integrity issues they may eat then it kicks when you add zyprexa onto it it can kick them into full-blown type 2 diabetes then you can sell them insulin and test strips and all these other things so we do in the medical community and it's unfortunate i don't many of the doctors who do this It's not because they are really, really out to hurt people. It's not some necessarily grand conspiracy with doctors. Many of them do this because that's what they've been told. They went to school, and their whole framework and the structure of their thinking hinges upon what they were taught in school. And if you, when in your formative years as a medical provider, if you were taught to view things through a particular framework that is heavily influenced by the pharmaceutical industry, you may in your heart believe that what really will help your patient is a pill. Yeah, it, so. it gets it gets ingrained. I mean, we can look at religion for a comparable. 
and I don't want to put anybody's religion down, but we have dozens and dozens, not the individual sects, but, you know, let's say Christianity, Muslim, Jewish, Hindu, uh, different shamanic faiths, and we, if we take them all and we put them all together, they can't all be 100% right. Right now, we can say ours is the right one. Whatever you know, but I don't want to get into that. But each person can say that, but they can't all be right. But the priest inside each one certainly believes a hundred percent of what he's telling people. And I think the doctors get that way too. Like if if you, if I go pay, you know, several hundred thousand dollars for my education, and I go to a med school, and then I or go to pre med, and then I go to med school, and then I intern, and then I maybe I specialize, and I spend another two years doing that, and I'm a you know a cardiothoracic surgeon, and and I've got 14 years of the finest education. And it got to be fair, if if I'm having a heart attack, I want that guy at that point. But that guy's going to believe everything he's been taught. Empirically, one because he can go in and actually save somebody's life in, a, in, a, in an operating room. He's just say, "See, it works." But that doesn't mean that he's actually learned a hell of a lot about health. Uh, and one of my favorite authors, Andrew Weil, says that the word "health" is almost never even used in medical school, which is shocking, but I guess true. Mm-hmm. It seems to be more of a focus in nursing school because we do health promotion and maintenance and we do all these ridiculous care plans and, you know, silly things like that that give instructors job security. Um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, we have the Western focus on medicine, and this this is changing. But the Western focus on medicine has a track record of being sickness focused rather than health focused, and because of the way our market is structured, and because of the incestuous relationship between pharmaceutical companies and the makers of, of of medical products to treat various diseases, this this has this is intensified, I think, because now it's it's not oh, okay, this is a problem, let's treat it. Oh, this is a problem, let's treat it, and let's make a buck off of it too, and make our shareholders happy. And, and, and oh. some drugs are useful, like you, you've mentioned a few that you would you would love to have around. Um, but with all the new emerging drugs, these guys are spending nine billion dollars to get a drug approved. Nine billion with a B. So. They're not doing it to save the whales or the orphans. They're doing it to make more than nine billion back so they can make a profit, which got nothing against profit. But when we start moving into the billions based on a tiny little pill, the fact that it just might be marketed to people that don't really need it and it just might trigger another need and another need. I did insurance sales for like 15 minutes at one point in my life because I hated it. <laughs> but I was selling insurance that was like supplemental life, end of life insurance, things like that, um, where it was it was pretty easy to sell because you were going into existing customers and kind of doing adders and things like that. And you'd start, you know, the, you know, the generic medical questions. Are you on any medication? And if they were over 60, out come the bottles because they don't even know what they're called. And then you start saying, <laughs> well, what's that for? Oh, that's for my acid reflux. Okay, well, what's that for? That's because of the side effect of the medicine that I take for the acid reflux. You write that down. Well, what's that for? Oh, the one that I take to suppress the side effects of the acid reflux makes me queasy. So I take this to deal with the... And you find out they're taking like eight medicines, and six of them are for side effects of the two. And I think that's that's where we're at. So I guess my advice, you might think I'm nuts, is don't go to the doctor unless you need to. I mean, you know, if you have high blood pressure and you need to maintain your your health and whatever, fine. But, I mean, take some personal responsibility for your own health. And if you occasionally get a runny nose, deal with it. You know, you don't moms don't take your kids for penicillin or ampicillin or ethromycin or whatever because the kid's nose is right. First of all, it's probably not, it's probably viral and antibiotics aren't going to do anything anyway. 
and we're headed down a bad path, so um, cut that stuff out, I guess. Uh, we, we are way over now, but hey, we're not on the radio or anything where we're limited in time. Um, but I do need to kind of wrap up with you. It's been an amazing interview. I'm so glad that I brought you on the air. You got any like maybe final thoughts for folks before we wrap up here? Take steps to increase the amount of options that you have because they are tools in your toolbox. And the more tools in your toolbox, the more likely you are to be able to pull that tool out in a given scenario and be able to fix whatever problem may present itself. Well, I'll tell you what. If you ever want to come back on the air again, I don't care if it's next week, next month, or next year, you just let me know. Uh, I think we could probably just roll here for another hour without any uh, any headaches or uh, heartaches and just keep on going, and we'd probably come up with another hour of material in there. So thank you very much for being with me today. And, again, if you want to come back, the door will always be open to you. Oh, well, thank you so much. I, I will take you up on that offer, I'm sure. This has been wonderful. I've really enjoyed it. Well, again, thanks for being with us. And, folks, with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with the Patriot Nurse helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.